Hello, I'm Alice from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University Belfast. Welcome to episode 13 of our podcast, The Theory of the Postdoc Evolution. We will hear from Professor Helen Coleman from the Center for Public Health at Queen's about how she quickly progressed in her academic career, especially while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. This interview was carried out by Daisy Rishliman, postdoc in CPH in March 2021. Enjoy. I have the honor now of interviewing uh, Professor Helen Coleman from the Center of Public Health. Helen is the group lead for the Cancer Epidemiology Research Group. She's also Joint Deputy Director of the Northern Ireland Cancer Registry and was awarded very prestigious fellowships from CRUK, including her current Career Establishment Award. Um, I think Helen might be the youngest appointed professor at CPH. I'm not sure if that's correct, but I definitely was very impressed whenever whenever um, Helen was appointed professor. I'd love to hear more about that. And I've also heard rumours that you have an excellent work-life balance, which, which again, I think is maybe hard as, as an academic from my point of view. So I'd love to hear more about that. So I think I'd really just love to learn more from uh, sort of about your journey, Helen, and your your rest. Recipe, recipe for success is brought to you to where you are today. So yeah, I, I'd, I'd just love for you to start with just giving us a brief summary of sort of the roles you've been, you've held sort of before you've been appointed professor and how you, how you got there. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Desiree. That's um, an undeservedly high-praised introduction, uh, but uh, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak today and so I started off uh, as an undergraduate studying nutrition. I thought I was going to be a dietitian. Um, and by the end of the first year, I realized that actually doing the sort of clinical dietetics role and sort of mapping out food diaries and things like that wasn't really what I was interested in. What I was interested in was how nutrition affected disease. And so I spoke to my lecturers at the time, and instead of going to a hospital placement, I did a research placement at the Medical Research Council in Cambridge, actually, um, for a year. And that just cemented my, my love of, of research and all that it involves. So I actively sought out a PhD uh, after my degree and uh, came to Queen's to the Cancer Epidemiology Group to do that PhD. I did have a research assistant post between my degree and my PhD and after my PhD then I have had what some would say is a relatively straight path but I've, I've done a postdoctoral research position, then a lectureship, then senior lecture and, and now professor but it's a bit misleading because there were so many rejections and, and turns along the way but as my main role that that has been a, a relatively straight path but in addition during my postdoc years I, I worked for four years part-time as a lecturer at Southeastern Regional College so lecturing in a further education position and I, I taught anatomy physiology and nutrition to uh, students who were doing beauty therapy courses um, and sports nutrition and that was, was really enjoyable. That was two evenings a week um, during that time. So a little bit of the extra flavour to get some experience outside of the university setting. Well, that's really interesting, Helen. And so it really sounds like you've, you've really been with an academia and research from as soon as you, you know, left, left your studies. 
mm-hmm. and had, had some teaching experience um, very early on as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm completely institutionalized. <laughs> I, I think I would struggle outside of academia. Um, you said you mentioned that you had a postdoc postdoc position as well. Um, and how many years did you hold your postdoc position for? And and when did you then decide to start applying for for lectureships? Yeah. So um, in public health and epidemiology, I think we're slightly different from some of the the more lab sciences where there's fellowship opportunities available to us right from PhD level onwards. And I had identified a fellowship opportunity at the MRC um, that I applied for in the final year of my my PhD. Now, I didn't get it, but it, it sort of showed that I really wanted to stay on in academia and to do that sort of postdoctoral research. So I didn't get that, but uh, a three-year position did come up in the Centre for Public Health and it changed the direction of my research. I had done my PhD in nutrition and cancer epidemiology and this was taking me much more towards um, molecular epidemiology and cancer and sort of leaving the nutrition behind. Um, And I think what was important there was that it was adding new new methods, new skills that that helped broaden my CV. So I had that three-year position and then I had a a 10-month position shortly afterwards, so just over three and a half years before I started my lectureship. And I didn't have like a set timeline in mind of when I wanted to, to go for a lectureship, but I think what happened naturally over those three years was that I just started to get a bit restless. I had my own ideas that I wanted to take forward. It starts to get a little bit frustrating whenever you always have to do that through other PIs, you know, to apply for grants and things. So um, I was just really vocal about my intentions and I had a really supportive mentor uh, at the time who allowed me to apply for, for fellowships many of which got rejected along the way, but one finally stuck. And so, you know, that that helped then open that opportunity. But I do remember that feeling of, of restlessness and frustration. And, and that's when I knew I wanted to move on to, to be leading my own research. It sounds like you had that drive sort of to, to move up, you know, quite quickly, quite, quite very, very early on. And I imagine that maybe it was what helped you then propel and you drive that and give you the energy to, to do that and keep applying. I think the the, the lecture the lectureship positions I think right now a lot of postdocs probably feel some frustration around that there's a very limited sort of you know number of lectureship positions and it sounded like you know after three years you know a lot of postdocs probably say that's relatively early on to to be in awarded lectureship positions. What do you think did make you stand out and what why do you think you you were awarded it um after that time? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question, and I think it's worth saying that you know I started my postdoc in 2009, and I can see how much has changed in that 10 to 12 years since. That it that it feels like the the post has always been moved slightly higher, and certainly, really to to be competitive for a lectureship, it was almost a given that you had to have won a fellowship and to experience internationally. Now, for me, that was difficult because I I didn't want to move. Um, My husband is very much based with his family business here in Northern Ireland. So I had to seek other ways to try and identify collaborators and 
and get international experience through shorter placements. But the feedback that I always got throughout applications was that I was a very productive scientist and researcher and that I had an, a lot of publications. Um, and I think I had always sought to, to strengthen my CV constantly through publications because like it or not, even though we are really well, we want really well-rounded researchers and lecturers, the number of publications that you have and the quality of those is always going to be the first thing that people will go to on the CV. Yeah, it sounds like um, the, the publications were one of your really strong points. And, and is that what you would recommend postdocs who are applying for lectureship positions to really to really focus on that? Yeah, to, to really have a look at your at your CV and. You know, for example, I had a bit of a dip in my publications around 2010, where, and that was the year that I had uh, got married. I had just started my, my new post. I was building up momentum. So at that stage, commensurate with my career, the number of publications didn't look particularly strong, whereas slightly uh, later on, you know, a couple of years later, I had built up that momentum. Um, I think we're really fortunate in epidemiology and public health that we are working with lots of available data and generally having publications or, or the opportunity to write publications is always there, whereas it's slightly different for anyone working in a more lab-based setting where it's, you could be doing two or three years of, of work to work towards one big high-quality paper. Um, I will say that's recognised, you know, so, so that quality over quantity, you know, across different disciplines is really important. Um, what can help alongside that is identifying reviews and writing reviews that, that you have control over and that you can write. And it's also really important that your contributions are recognised within the team so that you're given the opportunity to be first author, which was always the case for me on the papers where it was appropriate for me to be first author alongside the others where you're contributing as part of a bigger team and maybe a co-author. So really helping sort of seeking opportunities for more publications and would, would be ideal for postdocs. And what about um, what what importance would you give to sort of holding any sort of citizenship roles and um, for for postdocs? Did you, did you hold any? And do you think that sort of added anything to, to your experience? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I was the Centre for Public Health uh, representative at the Postdoc Society, uh, which had only really started around that time and. I think what that introduced me to was cross-centre working within the School of Medicine and Dentistry and Biomedical Sciences. And that's something that I, I think really helped me in my career and, and that I became known for. I actually remember going over to the uh, CCRCB, as it, as it used to be called, um, and I would have been over there quite a lot. And somebody said to me, have you moved in here? Or is this, I feel like I'm always bumping into you. But that sort of cross-campus and cross-centre working, physically, of course, public health, we're based over at the Royal Victoria Hospital, separate from everybody else. And so it was really important for us to make that extra effort. But that led to so many other things and so many um, collaborations. And the Postdoc Society was one of those. I think one of the other things I did was I was a STEM ambassador, so uh, I always like to volunteer for events 
where I was going out and networking at schools um, and generally just if there was opportunities there that I thought I could contribute to I always stuck my hand up to, to say yes. There's certainly there's certainly always a lot of extra things you know that the postdocs and um, that it can be perceived as you know we're being asked to do or being offered to do etc that are not sort of our 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 core work and do you, do you think it's important if you want to progress in your career to to take on those extra responsibilities and extra roles and and where where do you think we should we should draw the line and, and but still be able to progress and not being seen as a, as a naysayer and, and not collaborative? Yeah, yeah, it's it's the, an ongoing battle even now that 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 balance of how how do you contribute. I do think it's really important to contribute in some way to, to citizenship uh, and to the broader university. I think it's up to you and obviously with your with your line managers or mentors to decide how much is appropriate of your time to contribute to those activities. You know, generally about 10% of your time for career development, you know, and those sort of broader activities would be appropriate, I would suggest. And I think what I would say is if you're doing a role now, say, for example, you're you're a representative or you've contributed to tutorials in your centre for two or three years and you're asked to take on something else, I would consider, well, is it adding to my CV? Is it bringing me something additional? And if the answer is yes, is it something you want to do? Um, and if that answer is yes, you then need to look at the roles that you're currently doing and see what you can give up. So it's that it's that constant evolution, and not only does that benefit you, that opens up an opportunity for somebody else coming along behind you because they may want to do the role that you're currently doing. So, so just trying to make sure that you are always sort of adding to your experiences. Yes, being a good citizen, but not always being cumulative that you're letting something else go at the same time. One of my colleagues did say there is an art to, to saying no as well. Uh, so, you know, it's sometimes it's not right now or sometimes it's say yes more slowly, you know. <laughs> uh, so do consider what's right for you and what you want to do. But that's that's a really good point, sort of, you know, considering what else you could potentially give up to make that extra time. And, and is that um, what I said earlier about that you are able to hold a very good, uh, good work-life balance? And um, would you would you would you agree with that? And is that sort of your your recipe of how you do that? You sort of evaluate what you could give up and what you could take on, or can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, so I, that's interesting that I'm perceived to have a good work-life balance. I, I hope that that's a positive thing. So I I'm real I'm a real advocate for not working beyond typically the 37 to 40 hours a week that would be you know what it's what's in most of our contracts you're expected to work the hours it takes to do the job however that should not on a regular basis be more than those number of hours and working beyond that for me I just don't have the physical stamina to do that I you know I tire easily physically so I, I definitely work better in short bursts and I would always uh, recommend that people identify when works well for you. So Glenn talked earlier about being a morning person. I'm the complete opposite. I'm like Charlene. I'm a real night owl. So I rarely start work before 10am and I usually work what I would call a split day. So I, I generally work 10 to 4 
I then have the evening to myself uh, or with my family. And then I, I'm a real night owl. I like to write and do analysis at night. So I would take two to three hours then in the late evening, sort of nine to midnight to do the, to do the rest. Um, not every night of the week, probably three or four nights. I'm really, really strict with my weekends. When I finish on a Friday, I don't look at anything until a Sunday evening, usually just to prepare for the week ahead. But, you know, Saturdays are mine. Um, unless there's a really urgent deadline, you know, or something that, that really needs to be worked on. But rarely in academia does that happen. Usually you're aware of deadlines quite well in advance and so you can plan accordingly. I think something else that helps there is keeping meeting free time in your diary. So I, I, I'd keep at least one and a half days of my week without any meetings in it. And if that means then when you're asked to join meetings, you're having to put it off for two or three weeks, well, that, that's what it means. But if you didn't build that time into your diary, I think you would constantly feel extra pressure because um, you're not actually having time to do the work generated from meetings uh, and other things. It sounds like this is something that works very well for both uh, you and Glenn, you know, almost splitting, splitting your day so, so you have time with your family, sort of before and after work, and then do a couple more hours in, in the later evenings. Yeah. Um, and that's very encouraging to hear as well for you postdocs who are thinking of having a family or have a family and, and you can still manage to have that quality time with them, but still juggle a very successful career, whether that's in academia or uh, private. That, that's very encouraging. Yeah, although I, I chose not for work reasons, but I chose not to um, start my family until later. Um, so, you know, I have my, my daughter two years ago and I still worked that split day before she came along. It just worked for me. That time with my husband um, was, was just as important to, as with her and I. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think sometimes as well, having that time off to relax and refresh your mind and then come back to, to a task. It's hard to concentrate on anybody at first eight straight hours. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel like you had to make any sacrifices sort of during during your career to, to get you where you are now? And looking back, sort of was that worth it? Yeah, um, I don't feel like I've made sacrifices. I don't think that's the right word, but I've, I've made choices along the way. Um, and I think one of the things that was difficult was any time that I had to travel internationally. You know, I've done a number of trips abroad that took days, sometimes up to a week. Um, but I did have a three-month placement in the U.S. And for me, I had to negotiate that my husband would come with me. I didn't want to be apart from him for that length of time. That's a very personal decision for different people and for different circumstances. So you, you do what's right for you uh, and your family at that time. I know since having Aaron, I um, have made a mental decision myself. I don't want to do any international travel while she's young. Little did I know the pandemic would sort that out for me. So in a way, I, I have really benefited from this change to remote working because I'm actually still able to participate uh, in lots of events that I wouldn't otherwise have. And also, I think being based in Northern Ireland, but being part of the UK system, it's really important to travel a lot and to participate in events that are usually based in London or Bristol or, you know, there's central hubs where conferences always seem to be. And I, I guess a sacrifice is that that 4 a.m. start to get up to go to the city airport to, to do the red eye flight over, you know, we've, I was doing that maybe once a month at some points in my career and you know made that decision to do so
Yes, it sounds like it sounds like you find um, you find good ways to, to make it work for you and still pri- you know prioritize what's for you important important personally, but still you know have good great success you know in, in your work. How did you develop your research plan for your lectureship? Yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I had lots of projections along the way. So I I had at least three different sort of research plans that I wanted to take forward. Um, the, the first two weren't funded in terms of fellowships. And I think sometimes that's a really difficult decision to know when to leave an idea behind because it's just not gaining traction. Um, I knew that I wanted to work in GI cancer epidemiology, so I, I based my, my plans around that as a topic. But I talked a lot and had a lot of mentorship from my line manager, the late Professor Liam Murray, who uh, is, was just fantastic in terms of helping you to see which ideas could move forward um, and which ideas couldn't. You know, my typical interactions with him would have been bouncing into his office for five minutes, rattling off lots of ideas, and he, he would be able to siphon the ones that weren't runners uh, and and sort of steer you more towards the ones that were helpful. So it's not something that I could have done in isolation. You know, that mentorship was really important and, you know, working with your colleagues uh, along the way. Yeah, it, it really sounds like um, having having the right people around you and, and supporting you along your journey was, was key sort of for that as well. Getting a lectureship is often seen as an end goal, but in reality it is the start of a career as an academic. How and uh, where do you see your own career develop in the future? And are you looking for any opportunities to take new challenges or rediscover yourself as a researcher? <laughs> um. So I think it's really surprised me how much my career has evolved since taking up the lectureship. Um, I will be honest and say that the lectureship years, particularly on probation, were some of the hardest because you are generally still trying to finish off projects that you were working on as a postdoc. There's, There's always legacy projects that seem to come with you. You're trying to establish your new research area and gain traction there. And for me, I had the fellowship alongside my lectureship and probably hadn't negotiated enough to reduce those hours. So I have will always say that that was the hardest part. And actually, not that it's easy, but I find it easier to have more autonomy and, and control over what I wanted to do the, the more I went on. Um, Something that was really crucial, for example, I, I now have admin support now that now that I'm working at professor level, and that helps free up my time to work on other really crucial things. I would never have thought that I would be a professor at this stage. That wasn't something that I said, I thought I want to be a professor by such and such a time. But other circumstances out of our control sort of accelerated that process, you know, Obviously, the late Professor Liam Murray, his his untimely passing was a huge factor in that. And there was a a gap there in leadership that needed people to step up to. And at the start, there were three of us sort of formed a, a, a group to do that. And then as time went on, I think just slowly took on more and more and found that I was enjoying it and that I actually quite enjoy management side of things so yeah I just I don't know what the future will hold but I I wouldn't rule out any possibilities um, within that and just to see what I want now 
it's probably going to be different from what I want uh, in four or five years time but I will always remember my QGI mentors I've, I've taken part in the the Queen's Gender Initiative mentorship program a few times and there was one year that I was paired with a pro vice chancellor from another faculty and I said to her, oh, I, I want to apply for Reader. I, I don't want to be a professor too soon. And she just looked at me and said, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Why, why would you set those barriers? And it really, you know, I, I'm not a confrontational person for somebody to shut me down like that and say, no, that, that's wrong. Uh, it really challenged me in my own thinking. And sometimes we put these barriers in place ourselves and actually we shouldn't, you know, and particularly for females, I think in academia, that's a particular um, issue. That's great. It's great to have that mentorship by the sounds of it. Otherwise, you might not have gone, you know, for that for that higher position. Is there anything else you would really like to, to add sort of for postdocs? To yeah, I think there's there's one thing I would really like to ask, and that's uh, something that I never did. And that's don't compare yourself to others, you know, what you want to do and what your path is 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 very different from the person beside you or, or the person in another lab and the analogy I always use is you know Usain Bolt and Mo Farah are both brilliant athletes not everybody's a sprinter and I'm really glad that the systems are changing that for example time li limits are being removed from applying for fellowships to allow people to have different paths to, to to, to get to you know future positions so you know what you want is most important and don't worry if the person next to you is doing it faster or in a different way you know uh, everyone is unique that's great thank you so much Helen it's been really really insightful thanks so much for taking the time to chat to us today thank you a lot of great tips here from Helen on taking responsibility for your own working schedule, using the flexibility of the academic life to suit your own rhythm, and also on taking on opportunities in a strategic manner. Thanks for listening. You can check other episodes on our website at go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye.